these reflections have dispelled the agitation with which I began my letter, and I feel my heart glow with an enthusiasm which elevates me to heaven, for nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose, a point on which the soul may fix its intellectual eye. This expedition has been the favorite dream of my early years. I have read with other the accounts of the various voyages which have been made in the prospect of arriving at the North Pacific Ocean through the seas which surround the pole. You may remember that a history of all the voyages made for purposes of discovery composed the whole of our good uncle Thomas library. My education was neglected, yet I was passionately fond of reading. These volumes were my study day and night, and my familiarity with them increased that regret which I had felt, as a child, on learning that my father's dying injunction had forbidden my uncle to allow me to embark in a seafaring life. These visions faded when I perused, for the first time, those poets, whose effusions entranced my soul and lifted it to heaven. I also became a poet and for one year lived in a paradise of my own creation, I am a Jain that I also might obtain a Nietzsche in the temple where the names of Homer and Shakespeare are consecrated. You are well acquainted with my failure and how heavily I bore the disappointment. But just at that time I inherited the fortune of my cousin, and my thoughts were turned into the channel of their earlier bent. Six years have passed since I resolved on my present undertaking. I can, even now, remember the hour from which I dedicated myself to this great enterprise. I commenced by inuring my body to hardship. I accompanied the whale fishers on several expeditions to the North Sea. I voluntarily endured cold, famine, thirst, and want of sleep. I often worked harder than the common sailors during the day and devoted my nights to the study of mathematics, the theory of medicine, and those branches of physical science from which a naval adventurer might derive the greatest practical advantage. Twice I actually hired myself as an under mate in a Greenland whaler, and acquitted myself to admiration. I must own I felt a little proud when my captain offered me the second dignity in the vessel and entreated me to remain with the greatest earnestness, so valuable did he consider my services. And now, dear Margaret, do I not deserve to accomplish some great purpose? My life might have been passed in ease and luxury, but I preferred glory to every enticement that wealth placed in my path. Oh, that some encouraging voice wouldn't swear in the affirmative. My courage and my resolution is firm, but my hopes fluctuate, and my spirits are often depressed. I am about to five proceed on a long and difficult voyage, the emergencies of which will demand all my fortitude. I am required not only to raise the spirits of others, but sometimes to sustain my own, when theirs are failing. This is the most favorable period for traveling in Russia. They fly quickly over the snow in their sledges, the motion is pleasant, and, in my opinion, far more agreeable than that of an English stagecoach. The cold is not excessive, if you are wrapped in furs a dress which I have already adopted, for there is a great difference between walking the deck and remaining seated motionless for hours, when no exercise prevents the blood from actually freezing in your veins. I have no ambition to lose my life on the post road between St. Petersburg and Archangel. I shall depart for the latter town in a fortnight or three weeks, and my intention is to hire a ship there, which can easily be done by paying the insurance for the owner, and to engage as many sailors as I think necessary among those who are accustomed to the whale fishing. I do not intend to sail until the month of June, and when shall I return? Ah, dear sister, how 
Can I answer this question? If I succeed, many, many months, perhaps, years, will pass B. You will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. I arrived here yesterday, and my first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare and increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking. I am already far north of London, and as I walk in the streets of Petersburg, I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling? This breeze, which has traveled from the regions towards which I am advancing, gives me a foretaste of those icy climes. Inspirited by this wind of promise, my daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation, it ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible, its broad disk just skirting the horizon and diffusing a perpetual splendor. There, for with your leave, my sister, I will put some trust in preceding navigators, their snow and frost are banished, and, sailing over a calm sea, we may be wafted to a land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hitherto discovered on the habitable globe. Its productions and features may be without example, as the phenomena of the heavenly bodies undoubtedly are in those undiscovered solitudes. What may not be expected in a country of eternal light? I may there discover the wondrous power which attracts the needle and may regulate a thousand celestial observations that require only this voyage to render their seeming eccentricities consistent forever. I shall satiate my ardent curiosity with the sight of a part of the world never before visited, and may tread a land never before imprinted by the foot of man. These are my enticements, and they are sufficient to conquer all fear of danger or death and to induce me to commence this laborious voyage with the joy a child feels when he embarks in a little boat, with his holiday mates, on an expedition of discovery up his native river. But supposing all these conjectures to be false, you cannot contest the inestimable benefit which I shall confer on all mankind, to the last generation, by discovering a passage near the pole to those countries, to reach which at present so many months are requisite, or by ascertaining the secret of the magnet, which, if at all possible, can only be effected by an undertaking such as mine. Metaphysical Tiverse Theatre Podcast on Anchor FM A podcasting host application available free to download on Google Play Store now. I shall do nothing rashly, you know me sufficiently to confide in my prudence and considerateness whenever the safety of others is committed to my care. I cannot describe to you my sensations on the near prospect of my undertaking. It is impossible to communicate to you a conception of the trembling sensation, half pleasurable and half fearful, with which I am preparing to depart. I am going to unexplored regions, to the land of mist and snow, but I shall kill no albatross, therefore do not be alarmed. For my safety or if I should come back to you as worn and woeful as the ancient mariner, you will smile at my illusion, but I will disclose a secret. I have often attributed my attachment to, my passionate enthusiasm for, the dangerous mysteries of ocean to that production of the most imaginative of modern poets. There is something at work in my soul, which I do not understand. I am practically industrious, painstaking, a workman to execute with perseverance and labor, but besides this, there is a love for the marvelous, a belief in the marvelous, intertwined in all my projects, which hurries me out of the common pathways of men, even to the wild sea and unvisited regions I am about to explore. But to return to dearer considerations, shall I meet you again, after having traversed immense seas, and returned by the most southern cape of Africa or America. I dare not expect such success, yet I cannot bear to 
Look on the reverse of the picture. Continue for the present to write to me. By every opportunity, I may receive your letters on some occasions when I need them most to support my spirits. I love you very tenderly. Remember me with affection, should you never hear from me again. I shall do nothing rashly, you know me sufficiently to confide in my prudence and considerateness whenever the safety of others is committed to my care. I cannot describe to you my sensations on the near prospect of my undertaking. It is impossible to communicate to you a conception of the trembling sensation, half pleasurable and half fearful, with which I am preparing to depart. I am going to unexplored regions, to the land of mist and snow, but I shall kill no albatross, therefore do not be alarmed. For my safety or if I should come back to you as worn and woeful as the ancient mariner, you will smile at my illusion, but I will disclose a secret. I have often attributed my attachment to, my passionate enthusiasm for, the dangerous mysteries of ocean to that production of the most imaginative of modern poets. There is something at work in my soul, which I do not understand. I am practically industrious, painstaking, a workman to execute with perseverance and labor, but besides this, there is a love for the marvelous, a belief in the marvelous, intertwined in all my projects, which hurries me out of the common pathways of men, even to the wild sea and unvisited regions I am about to explore. But to return to dearer considerations, shall I meet you again, after having traversed immense seas, and returned by the most southern cape of Africa or America, I dare not expect such success, yet I cannot bear to look on the reverse of the picture. Continue for the present to write to me. By every opportunity, I may receive your letters on some occasions when I need them most to support my spirits. I love you very tenderly. Remember me with affection, should you never hear from me again. Metaphysical TVRZ Theatre Podcast on Anchor FM, a podcasting host application available free to download on Google Play Store. I write a few lines in haste to say that I am safe, and well advanced on my voyage. This letter will reach England by a merchantman now on its homeward voyage from Archangel, more fortunate than I, who may not see my native land, perhaps, for many years. I am, however, in good spirits, my men are bold and apparently firm of purpose, nor do thee. Floating sheets of ice that continually pass us, indicating the dangers of the region towards which we are advancing, appear to dismay them. We have already reached a very high latitude, but it is the height of summer. And although not so warm as in England, the southern gales, which blow as speedily towards those shores which I so ardently desire to attain, breathe a degree of renovating warmth which I had not expected. No incidents have hitherto befallen us that would make a figure in a Letter. One or two stiff gales and the springing of a leak are accidents. Which experienced navigators scarcely remember to record, and I shall be well content if nothing worse happened to us during our voyage. Adieu, my dear Margaret. Be assured that for my own sake, as well as yours, I will not rashly encounter danger. I will be cool, persevering, and prudent. But success shall crown my endeavors. Wherefore not? Thus far I have gone, tracing a secure way over the pathless seas, the very stars, themselves being witnesses and testimonies of my triumph. Why not still proceed over the untamed yet obedient element? 
what can stop the determined heart and resolved will of man. My swelling heart involuntarily pours itself out thus, but must finish. Heaven bless my beloved sister. So strange an accident has happened to us that I cannot forbear recording it, although it is very probable that you will see me before these papers can come into your possession. Last Monday we were nearly surrounded by ice, which closed in the ship on all sides, scarcely leaving her the sea room in which she floated. Our situation was somewhat dangerous, especially as we were compassed round by a very thick fog. We accordingly lay to, hop, that some change would take place in the atmosphere and weather. About two o'clock the mist cleared away, and we beheld, stretched out in every direction, vast and irregular plains of ice which seemed to have no end. Some of my comrades groaned, and my own mind began to grow watchful with anxious thoughts, when a strange sight suddenly attracted our attention and diverted our solicitude from our own situation. We perceived a low carriage, fixed on a sledge and drawn by dogs, pass on towards the north, at the distance of half a mile, a being which had the shape of a man, but apparently of gigantic stature, sat in the sledge and guided the dogs. We watched the rapid progress of the traveller with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities of the ice. This appearance excited our unqualified wonder. We were, as we believed many hundred miles from any land, but this apparition seemed to denote that it was not, in reality, so distant as we had supposed. Shut in, however, by ice, it was impossible to follow his track, which we had observed with the greatest attention. About two hours after this occurrence we heard the ground sea, and before night the ice broke and freed our ship. We, however, later until the morning, fearing to encounter in the dark those large loose masses which float about after the breaking up of the ice. I profited of this time to rest for a few hours. In the morning, however, as soon as it was light, I went upon deck and found all the sailors busy on one side of the vessel, apparently talking to someone in the sea. It was, in fact, a sledge, like that we had seen before which had drifted towards us in the night on a large fragment of ice. Only one dog remained alive, but there was a human being within it, whom the sailors were persuading to enter the vessel. He was not, as the other traveller seemed to be, a savage inhabitant of some undiscovered island, but a European. When I appeared on deck the master said, Here is our captain, and he will not allow you to perish on the open sea. As soon as he showed signs of life we wrapped him up in blankets and placed him near the chimney of the kitchen stove. By slow degrees he recovered and ate a little soup, which restored him wonderfully. Two days passed in this manner before he was able to speak, and I often feared that his sufferings had deprived him of understanding. When he had in some measure recovered, I removed him to my own cabin and attended on him as much as my duty would permit. I never saw a more interesting creature, his eyes have generally an expression of wildness, and even madness, but there are moments when, if anyone performs an act of kindness towards him or does him the most trifling service, his whole countenance is lighted up, as it were, with a beam of benevolence, 
and sweetness that I never saw equaled. But he is generally melancholy and despairing and sometimes he gnashes his teeth as if impatient of the weight of woes that oppresses him. When my guest was a little recovered I had great trouble to keep off the men who wished to ask him a thousand questions, but I would not allow him to be tormented by their idle curiosity in a state of body and mind whose restoration evidently depended upon entire repose. Once, however, the lieutenant asked why he had come so far upon the ice in so strange a vehicle. His countenance instantly assumed an aspect of the deepest gloom, and he replied to seek one who fled from me. So strange an accident has happened to us that I cannot forbear recording it, although it is very probable that you will see me before these papers can come into your possession. Last Monday we were nearly surrounded by ice, which closed in the ship on all sides, scarcely leaving her the sea room in which she floated. Our situation was somewhat dangerous, especially as we were compassed round by a very thick fog. We accordingly lay to, hop, that some change would take place in the atmosphere and weather. About two o'clock the mist cleared away, and we beheld, stretched out, in every direction, vast and irregular plains of ice which seemed to have no end. Some of my comrades groaned, and my own mind began to grow watchful with anxious thoughts, when a strange sight suddenly attracted our attention and diverted our solicitude from our own situation. We perceived a low carriage, fixed on a sledge and drawn by dogs, pass on towards the north, at the distance of half a mile, a being which had the shape of a man, but apparently of gigantic stature, sat in the sledge and guided the dogs. We watched the rapid progress of the traveller, with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities of the ice. This appearance excited our unqualified wonder. We were, as we believed many hundred miles from any land, but this apparition seemed to denote that it was not, in reality, so distant as we had supposed. Shut in, however, by ice, it was impossible to follow his track, which we had observed with the greatest attention. About two hours after this occurrence we heard the ground sea, and before night the ice broke and freed our ship. We, however, later until the morning, fearing to encounter in the dark those large loose masses which float about after the breaking up of the ice. I profited of this time to rest for a few hours. In the morning, however, as soon as it was light, I went upon deck and found all the sailors busy on one side of the vessel, apparently talking to someone in the sea. It was, in fact, a sledge, like that we had seen before which had drifted towards us in the night on a large fragment of ice. Only one dog remained alive, but there was a human being within it, whom the sailors were persuading to enter the vessel. He was not, as the other traveller seemed to be, a savage inhabitant of some undiscovered island, but a European. When I appeared on deck the master said, Here is our captain, and he will not allow you to perish on the open sea. My affection for my guest increases every day. He excites at once my admiration and my pity to an astonishing degree. How can I see so noble a creature destroyed by misery without feeling the most poignant grief? He is so gentle, yet so wise, his mind is so cultivated, and when he 
speaks, although his words are culled with the choicest art, yet they flow with rapidity and unparalleled eloquence. He is now much recovered from his illness and is continually on the deck, apparently watching for the sledge that preceded his own. Yet, although unhappy, he is not so utterly occupied by his own misery but that he interests himself deeply in the projects of others. He has frequently conversed with me on mine, which I have communicated to him without disguise. He entered attent, ively into all my arguments in favor of my eventual success and into every minute detail of the measures I had taken to secure it. I was easily led by the sympathy which he evinced to use the language of my heart, to give utterance to the burning ardor of my soul and to say, with all the fervor that warmed me, how gladly I would sacrifice my fortune, my existence, my every hope to the furtherance of my enterprise. One, man's life or death were but a small price to pay for the acquirement of the knowledge which I sought, for the dominion I should acquire and transmit over the elemental foes of our race. As I spoke, a dark gloom spread over my listener's countenance. At first I perceived that he tried to suppress his emotion, he placed his hands before his eyes, and my voice quivered and failed me as I beheld tears trickle fast from between his fingers, a groan burst from his heaving breast. I paused, at length he spoke, in broken accents, unhappy man. Do you share my madness? Have you drunk also of the intoxicating draught? Hear me, let me reveal my tale, and you will dash the cup from your lips. Such words, you may imagine, strongly excited my curiosity, but the paroxysm of grief that had seized the stranger overcame his weakened powers, and many hours of repose and tranquil conversation were ne accessory to restore his composure. Having conquered the violence of his feelings, he appeared to despise himself for being the slave of passion. And quelling the dark tyranny of despair, he led me again to converse. Concerning myself personally, he asked me the history of my earlier years. The tale was quickly told, but it awakened various trains of reflex. Tian, I spoke of my desire of finding a friend, of my thirst for a more in time its sympathy with a fellow mind than had ever fallen to my lot, and expressed my conviction that a man could boast of little happiness who did not enjoy this blessing. I agree with you, replied the stranger, we are unfashioned creatures, but half made up, if one wiser, better, dearer than ourselves the metaphysical theater podcast on anchor fm a podcasting host application available free to download on google play store now when we trace any one of the major streams of present day spiritual life back to its sources we always encounter one of the spirits of our classical period has given an impulse and from it one or another spiritual movement has taken its start and still continues on today. Our whole German cultural life is so fully based on our classical. More than to express what Goethe or Schiller indicated long ago. We have lived so fully into the world they created that hardly anyone who leaves the path they indicated could expect our understanding. Our way of looking at the world and at life is so influenced by them that no one can rouse our interest who does not seek points of reference with this world. There is only one branch of our spiritual cultural life that, we must admit, has 
not yet found any such point of reference. It is that branch of science which goes beyond. Provide a satisfying overview of the world and of life. It is what one usually calls philosophy. For philosophy, how a classical period does not seem to exist at all. It seeks its salvation in an artificial seclusion and noble isolation from the rest of spiritual. The seeds contained in the scientific achievements of those heroes of the spirit. They and Goethe and then afterwards compare the two. They did not make this comparison for the purpose of gaining something for their own cause from the scientific views of the classical thinkers, but rather in order to test these thinkers to see how they stood up in the light of their own cause. We will come back to this in more detail. But first we would like just to indicate the consequences for this realm of science that arise out of the stance it takes toward the highest level of cultural development in modern times. A great number of educated readers today will immediately reject and read any literary or scientific when philosophy has enjoyed less favor than now, leaving aside the writings and take up questions concerning life and the world, questions of the most general interest, and which works are read today only by people in the profession. Nobody bothers except them. An educated person not in the profession has the vague feeling, this literature contains nothing that meets my spiritual needs, the things dealt with there do not concern me, they are not connected in any way with what is necessary for the satisfaction of my spirit. Philosophy, for, in contrast to this lack of interest, there stands an ever-growing need for a satisfying view of the world and of life. What for a long time was a substitute for so many people, religious dogma, is losing more and more of its power to convince the urge us increasing all the time to achieve by the work of thinking what was once so to faith in revelation, satisfaction of spirit. The involvement of educated people could therefore not fail to exist if the sphere of science about which we are speaking really went hand in hand with the whole development of culture, if its representatives decay stand on the big questions that move humanity. One must always keep one's eye on the fact of seeking out the need that exists and satisfying it. The task of science, science in the broader sense, from Sire to know is not to pose questions, but rather to consider questions carefully when they are raised by human nature and by the particular level of asking for their findings. But this science passes over the questions that are culture need that is not being satisfied by anyone. Our central science the science that should solve the actual riddles of the world for us cannot be an exception among all the other. Not just come to terms with our classical thinkers, it must also seek in them the seeds. Culture. This necessity resides in the very nature of the matter. It is also due to this necessity that modern researchers have occupied themselves with the classical writers in the way already described above. But this shows nothing more than that one had a vague feeling of the impermissibility of passing over the convictions of these thinkers and simply proceeding with the order of the day. But this also shows that one did not really manage to develop their views any further. Despite all the excellence of many of the books about these thinkers, one must still say, regarding almost everything written about Goethe's and Schiller's scientific, again, scientific in the broader sense, works into relationship to them. Nothing demonstrates this better than the fact that the most contrary scientific theories have regarded Goethe as the thinker who had earlier inklings of their views. World views having absolutely nothing in common with each other. Standpoints recognized as being at the height of human development. 
one cannot imagine a sharper antithesis than between the teachings of Hegel and Schopenhauer. The latter calls Hegel a charlatan and his philosophy vapid word rubbish, pure nonsense, barbaric. Other accept an unlimited reverence for Goethe and the belief that he adhered to their worldview. And it is no different with more recent scientific theories. Hegel, who has far the most significant follower of the English scientist, sees his own view prefigured in the Goethean one. Another natural scientist of the present day, Jessen, writes of, is now propped up by many seeming supports shows, unfortunately, how little people know nature by finding, through intelligent, deeply penetrating contemplation of nature, the overwhelming numbers, proofs of the agreement of his scientific theory with the intelligent observations of Goethe, it would put the unity of Goethe's thought in a very dubious light if both of these standpoints could justifiably cite it as their authority. The reason for this phenomenon, however, lies precisely in the fact that not one of these views, after all, has really grown out of the Goethean worldview, but rather each has its roots outside it. The reason lies in the fact that one seeks an outer agreement of one's view with details torn out of the wholeness of Goethe's thinking, which thereby lose their found a scientific direction. Goethe's views were never the starting point of scientific investigations but always only an object of comparison. Those who concerned themselves with him were rarely students, devoting themselves to his ideas without preconceptions, but rather critics, sitting in judgment over him. One says, in fact, that Goethe had far. It would be impossible to base a scientific standpoint on him. This is a total misconception about Goethe's nature. To be sure, Goethe was no philosopher in the usual sense of the word, but it should not be forgotten that the wonderful harmony of his personality led Schiller to say, the poet is the only true human being. What Schiller understood here by true human being was Goethe. There was not lacking in his personality any element that belongs to the highest expression of the universally human. But all these elements united in him into a totality that works as such. This is how it comes about that a deep philosophical sense underlies his views about nature, even though this philosophical sense does not come to consciousness in him in the form of definite scientific principles. Anyone who enters more deeply into the totality will be able, if he also brings along a philosophical disposition, to separate out that philosophical sense. Approach him with an already fixed view. Goethe's spiritual powers always work in a way. Systematic presentation of them. Metaphysical TVRZ Theatre Podcast on Anchor FMA. Podcasting host application available free to download on Google Play Store now. Metaphysical TVRZ Theatre Podcast on Anchor FM Rasa. Rasa. Sanskrit. Essence. Taste. Or flavor. Literally sap. Or just an Indian concept of aesthetic flavor, an essential element of a work of visual, literary, or performing art that can only be suggested, not described, is a kind of contemplative abstraction in which the awareness of human feelings suffuses the surrounding world of embodied forms. The theory of Ross is attributed to Bedata, whose age priests may have lived sometime between the first century and the third century. It was developed by the rhetorician and philosopher Ben Avigupta apply it to all varieties of theater and poetry, the principal human feelings, according to Benata, 
hard light, laughter, sorrow, anger, energy, fear, disgust, heroism, and astonishment, all of which may be recast in contemplative forms, the various rasas, erratic, comic, pathetic, furious, heroic, terrible, odious, marvelous, and quietistic. These rasas comprise the components of aesthetic experience, the power to taste rasas are rewarded for merit in some previous existence, concept of aesthetic flavor, or rasic, a kind of contemplative abstraction in which the inwardness concept of aesthetic flavor, or rasic, a kind of contemplative abstraction in which the inwardness emotion, of, and evoking the rasic, literally, rasa means taste, or flavor, my man, pantomime, orientalist traumas, and, and conventionalized mime, and the rasas, folk, Application available, free to download on Giga Play Store now. If we study the Book of Heaven, the marvelous zodiac, we can comprehend that the new Aquarian age is governed by the zodiacal sign of Aquarius, the water bearer. Endless eternal spiritual understanding and wisdom. The symbol of Aquarius is a woman with two urns full of water trying to intelligently mix the waters of the two urns. See the 14th Arcanum. This symbol brings us the remembrance of sexual alchemy. If in the age of Pisces the human being was only the slave of the sexual instinct, this is symbolized by the two fish within the waters of life, in Aquarius the human being must learn the transmutation of the sexual forces. Aquarius is governed by Uranus, Uranus O equals fire, Anus equals water. Uranus is the planet which governs sexual functions. It becomes incongruent and absurd that some isolated individuals and certain schools of a pseudo-esoteric type reject the matrona. However, they have the pretension of being, they say, initiators of the new era. Uranus is 100% sexual and in the new era governed by this planet the human being must deeply know the mysteries of sex. Multitudes of schools of black magic exist, many of them with very venerable traditions that teach sexual magic with the spilling of semen. They have very beautiful theories that attract and captivate and if the student falls in that seductive and delicious deceit, he becomes a black magician. Those black schools affirm to the four winds that they are white and that is why ignorant ones fall. Moreover, those schools talk of beauty, love, charity, wisdom, etc, etc. Naturally, in those circumstances the ignorant disciple attains the belief with firmness that such institutions are not evil and perverse. Remember good disciple, that the abyss is full of sincerely mistaken ones and people of very good intentions. Fear not the evil, resist yet not the evil, I am the god of the evil and the good. To reject the matrona signifies, as a fact, the pronunciation against the sign of Aquarius, which is governed by Uranus, the king of sex. The ignorant fornicators of reactionary pseudo-occultism totally ignore the secret doctrine of the severe of the world, the Christian esotericism. Jesus Christ is your imagination. The pseudo-esoteric and pseudo-occultist reactionism ignores that the primitive Gnostic Christian sects were practicing the matrona. Sexual magic was always taught in all of the ancient schools of occidental mysteries. Matrona was known among the mysteries of the Templars, among the mysteries of the Aztecs, Mayans, Incas, Chipchas, Zapotecs, Arocans, Toltecs, Mysteries of Eleusis, Mysteries of Rome, Mitra, Cartagus, Tyre, Celtic Mysteries, Phoenicians, Egyptians, Druids and in all of the primitive Christian sects, 
such as the sect of the essence that had their convent at the shore of the Dead Sea and had as one of its most exalted members Jesus, the Divine Rabbi of Galilee. The Matrona, sexual magic, is universal. It is known in the mysteries of North, South, East and West of the world. But it is violently rejected by the reactionary, fornicating and regressive pseudo-occultists. The fundamental stone of the authentic and legitimate schools of the mysteries is the Matrona, the arcanum or sexual magic. True illuminates do not dream. Dreams are for those who are asleep. True illuminates live in the higher worlds, out of the physical body, in a state of intensified wakefulness without ever dreaming. Dream Yoga Metaphysical TVRZ Theatre Podcast on Anchor FM A podcasting host application available free to download on Google Play Store now. Things will disappear only as man changes in consciousness. Deny it if, you will, it still remains a fact that consciousness is the only reality and things but mirror that which you are in consciousness. So the heavenly state you are seeking will be found only in consciousness, for the kingdom of heaven is within you. As the will of heaven is ever done on earth you are today living in the heaven that you have established within you. For here on this very earth your heaven reveals itself. The kingdom of heaven, really is at hand, now is the accepted time. So create a new heaven, enter into a new state of consciousness and a new earth will appear. The former things shall pass away. They shall not be remembered, not come into mind anymore. For behold, I, your consciousness, come quickly and my reward is with me. I am nameless but will take upon myself every name, nature, that you call me. Remember it is you, yourself, that I speak of as me. So every conception that you have of yourself that is every deep conviction is that which you shall appear as being for I am not fooled, God is not mocked. Now let me instruct you in the art of fishing. It is recorded that the disciples fished all night and caught nothing. Then Jesus came upon the scene groovy baby and told them to cast their nets in once more, into the same waters that only a moment before were barren and this time their nets were bursting with the catch. The story is taking place in the world today right within you, the reader. For you have within you all the elements necessary to go fishing. But until you find that Jesus Christ, your awareness, is Lord, you will fish, as did these disciples, in the night of human darkness. That is, you will fish for things thinking things to be real and will fish with the human bait which is a struggle and an effort trying to make contact with this one and that one, trying to coerce this being or the other being, and all such effort will be in vain. But when you discover your awareness of being to be Christ Jesus you will let him direct your fishing. And you will fish in consciousness for the things that you desire. For the desire will be the fish that you will catch, because your consciousness is the only living reality you will fish in the deep waters of consciousness. If you would catch that which is beyond your present capacity you must launch out into deeper waters, for, within your present consciousness such fish or desires cannot swim. To launch out into deeper waters, you leave behind you all that is now your present problem, or limitation, by taking your attention away from it. Turn your back completely upon every problem and limitation that you now possess. Dwell upon just being by saying, I am, I am, I am, to yourself. Continue to declare to yourself that you just are. Do not condition this declaration, just continue to feel yourself to be and without warning you will find yourself slipping the anchor that tied you to the shallow of your problems and moving out into the deep. This is usually accompanied with the feeling of expansion. You will feel yourself expand as though you were actually growing. Don't be afraid, for courage is necessary. You are not going to die to anything but your former limitations, but they are going to die as you move away from them, for this live only in your consciousness. 
in this deep or expanded consciousness you will find yourself to be a power that you had never dreamt of before. The things desired before you shoved off from the shores of limitation are the fish you are going to catch in this deep. Because you have lost all consciousness of your problems and barriers, it is now the easiest thing in the world to feel yourself to be one with the things desired. Because I am, your consciousness, is the resurrection and the life, you must attach this resurrecting power that you are to the thing desired if you would make it appear and live in your world. Now you begin to assume the nature, 